Take your girlie to the movies If you can't make love at home There's no little brother there who always squeals You can do an awful lot in seven reels Hello and welcome to Paleo Cinema Podcast number 186. My name is Terry Frost and this time we've got a couple of kind of gentle movies. The first one is one that's been recommended by Patreon subscribers and it is the 1983 British comedy Local Hero starring Peter Regat, Dennis Lawson, Fulton McKay, Burt Lancaster and Peter Capaldi. And then we go through to the cutting edge of paleo cinema's timeline a movie that's only just over 20 years old and it is the 1996 american drama comedy big night starring stanley tucci tony shaloub isabella rossellini ian holm and Minnie driver so kind of two really good films two really interesting films not the biggest films in the world but they're very good so sit back i'm going to get the contact details out of the way and then we'll start the podcast Paleo Cinema Podcast appears every two weeks. It's a podcast of classic film appreciation. The rules are pretty easy to remember. Each episode is a talk about two movies in it, and the movies have to be over 20 years old. Apart from that, they can be of any genre. Podcasts thrive on feedback, so you can send emails or MP3 voicemails to cultguru at gmail.com. That's K-U-L-T-G-U-R-U. You can go over to the Paleo Cinema Cafe on Facebook or take a look at paleo-cinema.blogspot.com. iTunes reviews are also welcome. To support the podcast financially, you can head over to patreon.com slash paleocinema. Well, I'd like to acknowledge the Korong Jung Baluk and Mapiang Baluk people, the traditional owners of the land on which I'm recording the podcast, and pay my respects to their elders, both past and present. This podcast may contain adult words and concepts, so if you play it with small children around, expect to answer some uncomfortable questions later. Hey guys, how, how is everybody? Um, I've got some sad news. It may not be news to everybody, but I do have to um, deal with this matter. Unfortunately, the head of B-Movie Podcast, Vince Rotolo, died suddenly this week. And there's been a lot of um, commemoration of Vince's life in, in the podcast community online in that week. It's, it's a bit of a shock for everybody, uh, particularly for, for those of us who actually had interactions with Vince. Uh, Vince was on Paleo Cinema Podcast in episode 117. He and I spoke about Taxi Driver together. And um, from talking with him um, online, Vince, Vince was a lovely guy. He was passionate about movies. He wasn't always the most articulate and most knowledgeable about them, but he was passionate about them. He had a great love for genre films, but he also had a love outside of the taxi driver thing being a part of that too. Even though um, Vince's podcast was very much about B-movies and genre films, he did have a, an interest outside that realm. And um, he gave me a lot of good advice online when I was starting the podcast because I came in slightly after Vince did. And his was one of the first podcasts I listened to. He told me how to get the levels even on a podcast, uh, a bunch of other things. So um, I'm feeling quite gutted in a way uh, with Vince's death. And my very, very best regards and, and hopes for uh, a healing future go out to his wife, Mary. And also to Nick and Juan, who regularly podcasted with him. Uh, it's a profound shock 
that this has happened in the podcasting community because it's such a young genre, it's a young medium. We haven't really very much had to deal with this kind of a situation before and the heartening thing about this, even though it is a, a terrible and shocking thing, is how on point everybody's instincts were. There was no bitchiness, there was no kind of yeah, ugliness about it all. Everybody spoke from the heart, everybody has supported each other and there's just, you know, this this is a great community of people. Whether you're a listener, whether you do podcasts yourself, doesn't really matter. The communities we build with this weird little medium are of value and they do help people through some rough times. And all I can say is that um, please listen to a few episodes of B Movie Cast. Vince was the real deal, and um, he'll be very much missed, particularly by me. So I'm going to play a little bit of music, and then when I get back, we're going to be talking about Local Hero and Big Night. So rare, you're like a fragrance of blossoms fair. The breath of air Fresh with the morning dew So rare You're like a sparkle of old champagne Orchids in cellophane Couldn't compare with you You are perfection You're my idea of angels singing the Ave Maria For you're an angel I breathe and live you With every beat of the heart that I give you So rare This is a haven on earth we share Caring the way we care Ours is a love so rare You're my idea of angels singing the Ave Maria. For you're an angel, I breathe and live you with every beat of the heart that I give you. So rare, this is a heaven on earth we share. That, of course, is the Mills Brothers with So Rare. I love those close harmonies. They're really great. Uh, so we're going to do these in chronological order, which is kind of contrary to the way I've been doing it the last few podcasts. But uh, the first movie I'm going to talk about is the 1983 British comedy drama Local Hero, written and directed by Bill Forsyth and starring Peter Regat, Dennis Lawson, Fulton McKay, 
band Burt Lancaster, as well as other people like Peter Capaldi and Jenny Seagrove. Now, the plot's fairly simple. Um, Mac McIntyre, Peter Rigott, is a typical 1980s hotshot executive working for Knox Oil and Gas in Houston, Texas. The eccentric chief of the company, Felix Happer, played by Burt Lancaster, chooses to send him, largely because of his surname, to Scotland to acquire a village of finesse to make way for a refinery that Knox Oil wants to um, build. Mac, who is actually of Hungarian extraction, is a little apprehensive about the assignment, complaining to a co-worker that he would rather take care of business over the phone or via telex machine. Happens an astronomy buff and tells Mac to watch the sky, especially around the constellation of Virgo, and to inform him immediately if he sees anything unusual. When he arrives at Furness, Mac is met by... Um, the well, when he arrives in Scotland, he's met by the local Knox representative Danny Olson, Peter Capaldi, and they visit a um, Knox research fa- facility in Aberdeen, where they both meet um, a marine researcher called Marina, played by Jenny Seagrove, who may or may not be a mermaid. Um, they spend a few weeks in finesse, and Mac gradually kind of comes to terms with the locals. And, you know, it's a nice feel-good kind of movie. Now, I'll kind of paraphrase a little bit from the Wikipedia entry on the film. But um, I'll play the trailer now. This is an American trailer for it, so it's got a little bit of a American bias, given the, the American actors are the only two that get a name mentioned in the trailer. But it'll give you a little bit of an idea, and it'll have that music by Mark Knopfler. There is a place where the northern lights transform the sky. Anything out of the ordinary, you telephone me, night or day. Modern mermaids spring from the sea. What's the most amazing thing you ever found? Impossible to say. See, there's something amazing every two or three weeks. The land breathes with an ancient mystery. Where are we? And all who witness its wonders come to believe in its magic. What about the sky? The sky, sir, is amazing. I wish you could see it. I wish I could describe it to you just like I'm seeing it. This is the new film from the producer of Chariots of Fire, Local Hero. The survey teams have found just about the only suitable bay on the entire coast. I think we should get a negotiator on the side right away. We're here on kind of a mission. Same here. I don't want to be coy with you, Gordon. We want to buy the whole place. We want to buy everything from the cliffs to the north through to the bay on the far side. That's all. Oh, boy. Are we going to be rich? Peter Riegert. Bert Lancaster. Take the chopper. Go to Aberdeen. Get on over to Houston. I want to stay here. Run the hotel. Do little bits of business. You can go to Houston. Take the Porsche, the house, the job. It's a good life there, Gordon. Local hero. (laughs) The story of an ordinary man who cared enough to do something extraordinary. Local hero.
got to confess right off the bat that the one thing I don't like about this movie is Mark Knopfler's music. I never liked Mark Knopfler's music, even though he's Glaswegian and the movie is predominantly set in Scotland. I just don't like his or Dire Straits music. It's a character flaw, I admit, but it's one that I happily embrace. Now, as I said, the cast is pretty good, but Lancaster, of course, acting god, one of my favourite actors of all time. And in this one, he, he plays a different, eccentric and, and slightly silly in some ways role. Uh, Peter Regan, of course, been in a number of other things. Uh, the, he was actually in a movie I've talked about previously on Paleo Cinema Podcast, a very obscure comedy called That's Adequate from 1985. We've got Dennis Lawson in there, who, apart from being Ewan McGregor's uncle, played a fighter pilot in Star Wars, which is the linkage for most fan geeks younger than me. Uh, Fulton McKay plays um, a little kind of an eccentric beachcomber character who's the kind of sticking point. His name is Ben Knox. He's the sticking point in selling off to the American corporation because everybody in the village wants to sell the village to them and get rich and live a lifestyle to which they hope to become accustomed. And they all start kind of going for the bucks because, you know, they're on a little Scottish village. Yeah, it's an okay life. Everybody has three or four jobs to keep the village going. Uh, in fact, at one stage, somebody asks Mac, do you only have one job? Because they've never actually met anybody who only had one job. Um, Gordon Urquhart, played by Dennis Lawson, is the local publican. He runs um, a legal business. He does a couple of other little gigs as well. So everybody's got multiple jobs except the priest and Ben, the beachcomber. Everybody else just kind of mucks in and, and helps out to keep the community going, which is kind of nice. Now, this movie harks back to the feel of a lot older English comedies, you know, little community-based comedies that have got a, a lot of eccentric characters in there. Something unusual happens and they all kind of have to respond to it. Movies like Passport to Pimlico or Whiskey Galore or those kind of Ealing comedies. This is very much an updated version of that for the 1980s where instead of um, a legal problem as in Passport to Pimlico or a whole bunch of whiskey washing up on shore as in Whiskey Galore we have the proposed takeover of the village by an American oil company just pause there for a moment because I forgot to do one of my little rituals for podcasting which is to light the scented candle in the man cave this one is sandalwood and spice pear and it's about the size of a beer stein and has two wicks in it um, but yeah, I kind of like this nice smell when I'm podcasting because I'm inclined to flatulence and one has to do something to combat that. But I digress. Back to the movie. Um, and, and the movie is kind of sweet. That It was filmed up around Fort William and Aberdeen and a bunch of other places in Scotland with which I have a passing familiarity having travelled through there a little over a decade ago. And they go through that enormous, beautiful valley near Fort William where they film parts of Skyfall, where the, there's almost a perfect rounded curve to the valley because it's an old glacier valley and it made me very nostalgic to see that again in local hero it's a beautiful place in the world and it's one i hope at one time to revisit if i can but um yeah and and the characters in it are interesting capaldi's character um danny is kind of the gormless assistant character which is a shame because 
I think he could carry a stronger role in this. His role is a little bit kind of underwritten in some ways, but nonetheless, he, he's kind of... It's interesting comparing young Capaldi to older Capaldi and wondering what the fuck happened to his face because we do that with actors whether we like to admit it or not. You see a, a beautiful young actress and then you see her as she is today and you think, what the fuck happened? And the problem is that there's a weird kind of genetic damage to which humans are prone called ageing. And it changes us um, unfairly and outrageously and egregiously, but nonetheless it changes us. And Capaldi, I think he's better looking as an older man, to be honest with you, than a younger one. He seems more comfortable in his skin, um, at least comparing the character of, say, Doctor Who to the character of Danny Olsen. But Capaldi's kind of good. He, he does the comedy well. He, you know, he's he's fully invested in the role. And the fact that he's meeting and chatting up and trying to form a relationship with Marina, who knows a lot about the ocean, has webbed toes, and there's an implication that she may be a selkie or a mermaid or something like that, which is kind of nice. Having that little touch of magic realism in a movie of this sort it's not a bad thing. It, it kind of lets us. Um, it makes things more magical when they don't really need to be made more magical, but it is kind of a nice touch. And um, the town of Furness is quite magical as well. It has the northern lights. It has meteor showers. It has a guy called Ricky who races through town at breakneck speed on a motorbike, and everybody in town's just got to dodge him when they walk out of a building. It's got um, town drunkards. It's got a guy called Victor who visits regularly, and he's um, a capitalistic Soviet fishing boat captain who visits his friends in Furness and kind of checks on his investment portfolio and kind of cuts business deals with Gordon and things like that. And he's played by an actor called, actor called Christopher Royski. And, yeah, he's quite good as well. He comes in from left field. Yeah, suddenly the Russians are coming and there's a Russian fishing boat in the bay. And um, a guy gets off the boat with a couple of bottles of vodka, kisses a few women. And, yeah, it's just like having a, a visitor to town, which is kind of interesting given the fact that this is before the Soviet Union collapsed. And um, at least in a kind of nominal sense, the Soviets were supposed to be the enemy of England and capitalism and all that kind of shit. And, in Thatcher's Britain and and that kind of works too it, it's subversive but it's subversive in a fun and interesting way it doesn't rub your faces in it and that's a feature of all of this kind of comedy even way back to the, the ones in the 40s and the 50s that are very similar in style and plot they were subversive against the status quo um, Passport to Pimlico was a comedy reacting against the rationing that England was going through at the time and suddenly this little borough of Pimlico is not a part of England anymore therefore rationing doesn't apply to them and they have a great time there and whiskey galore of course um, it was in some ways a protest against whiskey taxation when all this free whiskey washes up on a beach in Scotland and everybody suddenly has a, a great time with it you know those kind of things um, something unusual but wonderful happens and then there's a change in the village and in this case it's money and the possibility of the town being sold and the odd thing is that even though they're a not tightly knit community and you know they, they all kind of have made terms with their lot in life and the, and the way their life goes nonetheless they're all willing to piss off and get rich and again this can be seen at some levels as a satire on capitalism and the corruptive influence of capitalism as well, when suddenly there's a lot of money in the pot. 
how does that change how people see themselves in their community? And it's a really important issue as well, because at the moment in Australia, and again, I'm going to bring this back to politics, because that's how I roll with this podcast. In Australia, there's a big thing about negative gearing, which is a tax break that people who have a second property have. If the rental on the property is less than they're paying on a mortgage, they get a tax break for that, which is paid by the public purse. And there are a lot of kind of neoliberalist types who are saying, well, rich people pay most of the taxes and they pay more on a per-person basis. Therefore, they should have all of these tax breaks, even though it means that young families can't buy their own home and things like that because everybody who's richer is buying up all of the properties for investment purposes. There's that argument going on at the moment with us and um, there's an interesting kind of culture war happening as we approach a federal election. And Local Heroes' theme of the corruptive influence of capitalism and the seductive influence of the bucolic country life where life is simpler. And, and this is underlined at the start of the film where we see the Porsche 933 that Mac drives going through the freeways of Houston while a kind of mock newscast happens with crazy bad news weather reports about pollution and all sorts of things like that. So uh, Bill Forsyth is a bit heavy-handed right at the start of the film by front-loading how kind of dystopian and nightmarish Mac's life is in Houston and how empty it is. And there's a little scene too where he he says to a co-worker in the office, you're free for lunch. And then they go and have lunch from a vending machine on the same floor where they work. So they get the sandwiches out of the vending machine. That kind of stuff, which is, you know, not... It's underlined pretty heavily, but still, it's unless you're watching for it, it's really you know, something that's easy to pass by. But nonetheless, um, you know, Forsyth definitely is on the side of the, the villages of finesse rather than the capitalists of um, Knox Oil. And then we get to the, the reverse as well. There's a, there's a kind of turnaround there too where Happer, who owns Knox Oil, basically is a weird, eccentric idealist in his own way. He's um, unhappy with his own life. We know this because he has an anger coach, a kind of psychologist who he hires to insult him and to kind of, you know, basically let him deal with his issues by being insulted and treated like a piece of shit because everybody else treats him so well. And that psychologist, um, he, he ends up sacking, but ends up stalking him as well. So that's one aspect of it. But the other part is that Happer the Burt Lancaster character, is uh, an astronomy buff. He's interested in the sky. He wants a comet named after him. He's fascinated with the natural world in various ways, which is really cool. And he's the exact opposite we expect the head of an oil company to be. Even though the machine of the oil company is rapacious and is going to totally ruin the landscape of this coastline, which not too much of a spoiler to say doesn't actually end up happening. Um, nonetheless, having Happer be the the kind of yeah you know, the linchpin on which this plot turns to save the village. Well, not necessarily save the village, but to change the way the village is going to be used and the land's going to be used into a positive force in the world rather than a negative force, being an oil refinery. Um, and that's kind of interesting as well. Uh, th- this movie even though it's a comedy and it's a comedy of manners in a sense, as a comedy of a clash of cultures and um, the impact of an outside force on a small village, it does have some larger issues to talk about, which is cool. cool. I mean, I like that. I, 
I think that um, having several layers to it makes this movie, which wasn't necessarily a, a big film. Is there a see if I got any information about the budget of the film because it's probably uh, pretty poor. Three million quid made nearly six million quid in the box office, which is a, a fairly good return for it. And it's a movie that's now well respected. Uh, I know a lot of people wanted to hear about it on the podcast, and, and that's kind of cool as well. Uh, but you know the. I love the landscape. In a movie like this, landscape and, and the town's got to be one of the characters, is because in essence, one of the main plot points is about the town. And it was filmed in a whole bunch of different areas. Um, it was actually filmed in Texas as well. Uh, I thought they were faking it with the Texas scenes until I just noticed that, because there's a certain kind of English film which purports to be partly filmed in the US, where they find little bits of London that kind of look vaguely like a corporate landscape in America or, or a high-rise part of New York or something like that, and they substitute that. But apparently not. They did go to Houston, Texas, and they did um, film part of the film there with Peter Regat and um, Burt Lancaster, and, that, and that's kind of cool. I like that. And uh, they also filmed it, filmed it all over Scotland, I mean, all over the highlands of Scotland and the coastline, um, Fort William... Um, Banff, uh, Aberdeenshire, of course. Uh, let's see. Basically, check it up on Wikipedia yourself. You'll see all of the different locations there. And all of them are still pretty beautiful. I mean, Fort William, when I went through in 2004, is still a tiny village. And it's the only place I've ever been to that I know of that has a whiskey shop in the main street. Now, you've got to respect that. We did buy some whiskey there, to be honest. One of the other aspects of the film that's kind of interesting is the kind of metamorphosis that Mac goes through. He starts out as a 1980s corporate yuppie. He's got an apartment which has an appalling blue grouted tile bench top, which appalled the fuck out of me, having um, about five years ago renovated the kitchen. His bench top a, a appalled me and pissed me off um, no end. Had a horrible 1980s look. He's, he, he's addicted to telex machines. He drives a Porsche 933. He's everything that I hated in the 1980s at the start of this film. But he does, there, there are a number of things that kind of win him over in the village. The unerring friendliness of the villagers. The only phone that he can use to call back to Houston is a payphone on the waterfront. And when he needs 10p coins for the payphone, everybody in town just reaches into their pockets to give him some change without asking him for back. And yeah, there's that kind of instinctive generosity about the town. There's also the fact that he has an affair with Stella, Gordon's wife. With Gordon's approval, Gordon is, is kind of, you know, he's not a jealous man. He, he's quite generous, in fact, when Max starts having an affair with Stella. And that's kind of cool as well. They have a very healthy sex life because at the start of the film, when we first see Gordon, he and Stella are upstairs in the bedroom having it on. And um, I like that kind of comfortableness. The, the, the Gordon as a character and Stella as a character as well are so comfortable with themselves that um, they can, you know, Stella can have an affair with this rogue American who comes into town. And the friendship between Gordon and Mac doesn't change one tiny bit. And in fact, when Mac gets drunk and tells Gordon he can go and live in Houston and Mac will stay and, and live in the village with Stella, um, they both take it very kind of in a very sanguine manner and as a kind of intellectual exercise to discuss it. 
And I, I like that as well. I like the fact that they don't play to the worst aspects of um, imposed monogamy, if you know what I mean. That's, that's, that kind of works for me. Um, you know, monogamy is an entirely valid choice if people choose to do so. But I think that like having gay couples and like having trans characters and like a lot of other things, polyamorous people are excluded from the narrative in so many of our works of fiction. And even though they are out there in our community, I mean, I know eight or nine people who at various times have had polyamorous relationships and it hasn't damaged them. Uh, some of them still do, some of them don't, some have changed their life circumstances, uh, but one way or the other, I like the fact that the movie takes that approach, and I like the fact that it's that open to alternatives, and maybe that's what this movie's about in some ways, alternatives to destiny in a weird sense, you know, the town is destined to be turned into an oil refinery, and it isn't, Max destined to live a cold corporate life in Houston, and ultimately he finds that very unsatisfying and finds a better life for himself somewhere else, which there's an implication that he's going to embrace right at the end of the film. There are all of those aspects to the film which uh, make it more than it seems to be, and it really is a lot of fun because of that. It's a feel-good film, and that's not something to be ashamed of at all. I think that there's room in the world for all kinds of films. This is like when people say, oh, superhero movies are taking over everything and they're ruining the industry. William Friedkin, I believe, said that. And all that kind of thing. No, what's happening is, and there's a, there's a whole bunch of different changes going on. There's always been change in cinema and there always is going to be change in cinema. Yes, you're going to have those enormously expensive tempo movies like Captain America um, Civil War, which I should talk about in between the two movies because I did see and enjoy that. I haven't talked about the movies I've seen this month yet. And, um, yeah, there are going to be those ones, and they're a new kind of film. They're forming a mosaic of story on an enormous, epic, godlike scale. But then you get smaller films as well. And the thing is about the smaller films is they're not being shown in cinemas necessarily. Smaller films and smaller projects of various kinds are on streaming platforms like Netflix. They're... And and all of the other streaming platforms. I mean, Louis C.K. released his wonderful um, Horace and Pete 10-part series on his website. And um, he hasn't quite made his money back yet on it. But it's a, a new kind of narrative fictional storytelling. It's not television. It's not a movie. It's got a lot like, it's a lot like theatre in a way, and the Horace and Pete has a theatrical structure. But it's none of those things. It's something slightly new. And the smaller films and the smaller stories, the things like Local Hero would now appear on a platform like Netflix, where it's going to get a, a certain number of eyes. It's going to, The people are going to make their money back by leasing it to that platform. And it's going to get seen, which is the most important thing with any kind of medium. If you're spending a, a chunk of your life and a fair bit of money to make it to tell a story, which essentially is what a movie is, telling a story, then the worst thing for it is not to be seen, which is one of the arguments for and against piracy. Yes, the people have to make enough money to live, to live well, to be able to make the next projects. But on the other hand, if people don't see their work, 
they're not going to do that. And piracy at a certain level is okay because people say, I want to see that. I mean, there, there have been a number of times when I've downloaded a torrent of a movie and watched it and then bought the Blu-ray or the DVD of it because I wanted to keep it in a tangible form. Um, yeah, there are, there are those kind of arguments. And Local Hero is a smallish movie which at the time was shown in some cinemas. It went to VHS. I know that because I, I once saw a VHS copy of it. And it's lived on in um, multimedia of various kinds and streaming services. I believe it is also available on iTunes. And it's the kind of movie that, because of the, what it is, hasn't aged because the story's good the story the characters are interesting it's got some things to say that are still contemporary and it's a sort of smallish film that we would see on a more modern platform if it was made today i I got this fascination with how movies age and some of the most popular movies of the year in the 50s 60s and 40s and everything like this aged incredibly badly particularly women's pictures because there's an implicit sexism in women's pictures even if they're starring a number of strong female characters uh, particularly the, I'm thinking of the 1950s and 1960s which have dated incredibly badly and there are movies to do with minority races that have dated very badly but there are also other films which there's something about them that's prescient there's something about them that plays well to our modern culture in the 21st century. And I think even though this movie is, let's see, it's 1983, which makes it 33 years old, it plays really well to a contemporary audience. It's really kind of a a nice film. And I mean nice in a non-pejorative and non-bland sense because it isn't a bland movie. It's a fun movie. It plays with magic realism. It plays with corporate assumptions about the people who run corporations it plays with the assumptions about people who work for corporations it plays with the assumptions we have of people who live in little villages and it tells a good story and it's um kind of nice and i'm glad that i finally forked out and got a copy of it and i'm able to talk about it on the podcast so anyway i'm going to take a break and when we get back we're going to be going into the best kind of food porn with the 1996 american picture big night directed by campbell scott and stanley tucci starring stanley tucci mini driver ian holm isabella rossellini tony shaloub and Alison jenny Yeah. Uh-huh. 
even though that sounds a little bit like Bored Munro, it isn't. It's actually George Sanders singing, they never believe me. Um, yeah, I found an album of George Sanders singing, and um, it's an interesting album. But anyway, um, I forgot at the start of the podcast to talk about the stuff I've been watching, so I'm just going to crank up the old letterboxed page and um, refresh my memory about the things I'd watch. And there are a few of them this time. I've kind of picked up the pace a little bit with my movie watching. And uh, a couple of things of interest. One of which is The Liquidator, a 1965 spy spoof starring a guy from my hometown, Sydney, Rod Taylor. Also has Gilson John in it, Trevor Howard, and a bunch of other people. It's, it's neither good nor bad. It's kind of halfway in the middle there. It was one of the first James Bond spoofs. It came out a little bit before the Flint movies and a little bit before Matt Helm. And it has a big, brassy, Shirley Bassey theme song, which you can find on YouTube quite easily. And that was a bit of fun. Then I went to something I've talked about in the podcast. I rewatched a movie I've done on Paleo Cinema before. And that is Secret of the Incas, which stars... Um, Charlton Heston as the kind of prototype for Indiana Jones. I've talked about it in a previous podcast. I forget which one. There have been 186 of them. But if you haven't seen The Secret of the Incas, see it. It's it's great fun. Part of it was filmed in Peru on location. It's a kind of nice 1950s action flick. It's got Yima Sumac in it. And if you don't know who Yima Sumac is, Google it because you need to know who Yima Sumac is. She had a crazy vocal range and there's some doubts about whether she's actually a Peruvian princess or a chick from Kansas. Um, yeah, Secret of the Incas, you can tell exactly where Spielberg and Lucas pinched Indiana Jones from when you see that movie. The protagonist, Harry Steele, is kind of half Indiana Jones, half Gigolo, which is kind of interesting and um, shows, yeah, that there were some nice gritty adventure flicks in the 1950s and very little imagination in some of the Hollywood cinema of the 1980s. Um, it, was a, it was good to revisit it and I kind of like it for what it is and I like it for the fact that it, within the kind of constraints of 1950s Hollywood it told an interesting story and the character who has a, as a protagonist is kind of interesting. And, and the female uh, lead too played by an actor called Nicole Moray, um, was a refugee, which is kind of an interesting thing as the world is at the moment. Um, I did also see a movie on World Movies Channel on Foxtel, which was a 2005 action flick, The Protector, starring Tony Jaa, which is about um, a guy who's a protector of elephants in Thailand who comes to Australia because he's, the elephants he's supposed to take care of are captured and brought to Australia and he ends up in Sydney. Uh, it's got a fantastic action sequence in it with a very long take which they had to fill five, time, five times where Tony Jaa fights his way up a spiral gallery inside a building. Really cool stuff. Um, I don't think he's ever going to win an acting award but as far as action cinema is concerned Tony Jaa is the bomb and it was really really good in this. Uh, then I saw a documentary on Netflix which had a couple of hardcore pornography sequences in it, which surprised me a little bit. It's called Respectable, the Mary Millington story from 2016. And it's about a kind of sex symbol pop star, well, not pop star, but a kind of sexy starlet from the 1970s called Mary Millington, who started out doing hardcore loops 
in Europe and then kind of became very successful in England in softcore pornography. Um, it's really interesting. Uh, she had some unfortunate things in her life, including an addiction to cocaine, which ultimately may have led to her death. There are some very, very dodgy possibilities about Mary Millington's death. But um, I found the documentary very interesting, and it tells us a lot about exploitation cinema in England in the 1970s as well, which made it kind of um, a, a good but slightly disturbing watch. Then for the radio gig, which I did with the lovely Lisa Pellegrino in ABC Northern Territory, we because Anzac Day, the day when we celebrate our fallen soldiers in Australia and in New Zealand, uh, we watched Peter Weir's film Gallipoli, uh, which stars Mel Gibson and Bill Hunter. And yeah, that movie is great. It's not what a lot of people think it is. There's a lot of kind of flag-waving and kind of ugly patriotism that goes along with the movie Gallipoli for a lot of people. But it's very much an anti-war film and shows the way that the British Empire used the colonies, uh, making egregious and horrible um, mistakes in battle in the Dardanelles in the First World War. Um, I think it's Mel Gibson's best acting roles. Before he was totally fruit loopy. He was never a particularly nice person, and I have that from people who knew him at the, around the time this movie was made. But um, he was a very fine actor in this, and he really did bring his A game to the acting. Uh, a lot of it was filmed in South Australia, and it, I won't say anything more because I'm going to do this for a future podcast. I think it's an important Australian film, and it's one that I really want to talk about at length. The other big thing I've seen is Captain America's Civil War. It, come, it came out a week earlier in Australia than it did in the US. And it's really interesting to compare and contrast this movie with Batman vs Superman. I think it's inevitable that people will. Um, there's a conflict, of course, between Captain America and Iron Man, Tony Stark and Steve Rogers. And I think the way that this one is a much better film than uh, Bruce versus Clark is in the fact that both of them have points in their favour as far as their position on the Sokovian Accords, which is a, um, a UN agreement to control super-powered human beings. Now, Tony Stark is on one side of it for a number of good reasons, and Steve Rogers is on the other for equally good reasons, if not better reasons, because he actually has some information that Stark doesn't. Uh, the movie introduces a new character, Black Panther, T'Challa, the King of Wakanda, played by Chadwick Boseman, and he kicks ass. The standalone Black Panther movie, if it's done right, is going to be mind-blowingly good superhero action. Uh, he has a gravitas about him, Boseman, and he does kind of give us a very interesting character to play with there and I wanted him to have more screen time than he got to be honest with you and I think that that is yeah it bodes well for the future of not only the incredibly large and nuanced and detailed mosaic that is the Marvel Cinematic Universe but it's also for the standalone um, Black Panther movie which is going to be great we get literally one a one second panorama of Wakanda during the film, and it left me wanting more. Let's just say that. 
Um, it also introduces the new Spider-Man, Tom Holland. Uh, it's nice to have a Spider-Man who's actually played by a teenage actor, and I think that works really well. And um, he's... Yeah, he really works in the context of the ensemble. Uh, he carries his own weight in the scenes that he's in, and it's really good. Uh, the movie does end with a, a full-on battle between Captain America and Iron Man, which is disturbing because of the emotional investment we have in the characters. And if you are in the US or if you're in Australia or somewhere else and you haven't seen it yet and you have an interest in superhero movies, I recommend it. I think it does the crazy balancing act that's required of it very, very, very well. But anyway, I'm going to take another break now. When I get back, we're going to talk about the second of today's movies, Big Night, starring Stanley Tucci and Tony Shalhoub. Is this what I ordered? Yes, that is the risotto. Oh. It's a special recipe that my brother and I bring from Italy. But I get a side of spaghetti with this, right? Why? She likes starch. I don't know. Come on. Here, are no meatballs with the spaghetti? They were two brothers who came to America bearing Italy's greatest gift. To eat good food is to be close to God. I'm never sure what that means, but it's true anyway. <laughs> They have a talent for cooking. Now, all they need... If you give people time, they learn. This is a restaurant, not a cooking school. ...is a recipe for success. If we don't receive your payment by the end of the month, we will foreclose. What do you mean? Their only hope is a plan. Louis Prima. Louis Prima? He's a friend of mine. I make a call. He's in town next week. You cook for him. Louis Prima is coming. He's not just some guy. He's famous. Their only obstacle... Men boys is each other my brother sometimes is too um, uh, i have a younger brother i hate his guts their only chance how much does that leave 62 dollars and 47 cents is a feast Stay for Marcia. the samuel goldwyn company and reicher entertainment invite you to the four-star party of the year a sumptuously satisfying movie from first course to last. Oh my God. It's good, huh? He likes. Can you believe it? You'll find the atmosphere is delicious. Oh. An appetite rousing delight. It's a party, you know? It's a fun. The service impeccably crafted, wonderfully acted. I'm happy. And every course, a labor of love, delectable, warm, funny, and poignant. Here is to We guarantee you a night you'll never forget. Bite your teeth into the ass of life! Big night. Your table is waiting. Let's eat. Food porn's one of those really weird phrases in a way. It's kind of pejorative. It says that liking food, and particularly attractive food, is a bad thing. And it's kind of got a weird masturbatory implication to it. But this movie is wonderful food porn. It really is. And also wonderful acting as well. It's this kind of small scale, small story about ordinary aspirational people. I'll paraphrase from the Wikipedia entry on Big Night. Um, on the New Jersey shore in the 1950s, two Italian immigrant brothers from Abruzzo own and operate a restaurant called Paradise. One brother, Primo, is a brilliant perfectionist chef who chafes under the few customers' expectations of Americanized Italian food. Their uncle offers for them to return to Rome to help with his restaurant, which is growing in appeal to Primo. The younger brother, Secondo, is the restaurant manager, a man enamored of the possibilities presented by the new endeavor and of life in America. 
Despite Secundo's efforts and Primo's magnificent food, their restaurant is failing. Secundo struggles as a businessman, render him unable to commit to his girlfriend Phyllis, played by Minnie Driver. Secundo is played by Stanley Tucci, and Primo is played by Tony Shalhoub. Um, and he has recently been sleeping with Gabriella, the wife of a competitor. Her husband's eponymous restaurant, Pascal's, has succeeded despite, or perhaps due to, the mediocre, uninspired food served there. It's basically Americanized Italian food. Desperate to keep Paradise afloat, Secundo asks Pascal for a loan. Pascal demurs, repeating a past offer for the brothers to work for him. Secundo refuses to do this. He and his brother want their own restaurant. In a seemingly generous gesture, Pascal insists that he will persuade popular Italian-American singer Louis Prima to dine at Paradise when in town, assuming the celebrity jazz singer's patronage will revitalise the brothers' business. Primo and Secundo plunge themselves into preparation for the big night, spending their entire savings on food and inviting people, including a newspaper reporter, to join them in a magnificent feast centred around a timpano, a complicated baked pasta dish. Primo pours his heart into every dish, lavishing care and great expertise on the cooking. And that's as far as I'm going to go with it. Now, the ensemble on this is, is pretty sweet, and, and uh, the movie won uh, an award at the Sundance Film Festival in 1996. The movie was directed by Stanley Tucci and Campbell Scott, an actor, son of George C. Scott, by the way, but he's much nicer than his father. Um, and it was written by Stanley Tucci and his cousin, Joseph Tropiano. Uh the, the cast is, is pretty good. Tucci is fantastic in it. So is Tony Shaloub as Primo. Uh, Mini Driver as Phyllis uh, in Holm as Pascal is um, outrageous and chews the scenery mercilessly, as the role demands. Isabella Rossellini is very, very smooth and very good and also very sexy, playing Gabriella. And there's a, flower, a florist whom... Primo um, kind of has a slight flirtation with, played by Alison Jenny as well. Uh, Campbell Scott is in it, playing a used car salesman, but they're the, pretty much the main characters. Now, this movie is about the immigrant experience partly, and, and um, obviously it's something fairly close to Tucci's family experience, which is kind of cool. Um, Primo is kind of unworldly. He, he's focused on the food. He's um, shy with women. His English isn't as good as his brother's. And he is a, a master chef. He is just superb. And when I say master chef, I don't mean some shit reality TV show. I mean top of the game, wonderfully gifted Italian, classical Italian chef. Now, Secundo is the front of house man he's slick he wears nice suits with those little um handkerchiefs in the top breast pocket of them he's well groomed he's articulate his english is still not perfect as indeed the bit where he goes to visit the bank um displays but he, he gets along well he's more in touch with the world around him and he, he wants to make a go of it in america the restaurant isn't popular and Secundo kind of blames Primo for not dumbing down the food. Where everybody wants spaghetti and meatballs, they're offering seafood risotto and um, other kind of traditional Italian dishes. And the American public's just not ready for kind of non-Americanized Italian food. And this is a problem pretty much any ethnicity has. 
there's a lot of Mexican food around that's not eaten in Mexico. There's a lot of Chinese food which isn't eaten in China or even Hong Kong or Taiwan. There's a lot of Japanese food which is kind of not eaten in Japan around the place. And there's something to do with onions in an outback steakhouse in America that has nothing at all to do with Australia. Where Primo and Secundo are kind of honest, hard-working characters in their own way. Pascal is a kind of boorish thug. He swears a lot. He's um, over-the-top and outrageous. There's evidence that he brutalises his own employees, as we see in one scene. And he basically realises that uh, as a restaurateur, he's kind of a whore. He gives people what they want, but he doesn't exceed their expectations. He doesn't try to teach them um, what real Italian food is, because in some ways he doesn't really know how to do it. Um, and um, Holm is really good in that as well. It's, it's, um, the ensemble works beautifully. The characters are very lived in in this movie. And... Um, the sense of the time and place also is really important. Um, there's a really nice scene that I think demonstrates this best between Phyllis and Segundo when they're sitting in a car and they're necking and they talk about making love and um, she says, well, we've done other things, you know, and that kind of thing. And Segundo really, you know, in a, in a sense, loves Phyllis, but wants to establish himself as a successful businessman before he marries her. And there is some little back and forth, there's a bit of back and forth in that where there's a slight language barrier that kind of impedes the communication between them. There's also, as we later find out, the fact that Secundo is sleeping with Gabriella that kind of complicates his feelings and he may well be feeling a little bit guilty for it as well. But the that little scene is, A, it's beautifully acted and it really does work well. But B, they sound like real grown-up people. They're not kind of playing to the audience. They're playing to one another in a very important way. And I, I really like that. I think that's it's one of those movie scenes that I really like. Now, this week, and, and I'm, I'm kind of... You're going to circle around back to the movie in a moment. But this week I saw an all-female version of Coriolanus, which was done by a um, heartstring theatre company here in Melbourne. They're a new theatre company. They're trying to find strong roles for women. And they did an all-female version of Shakespeare's Coriolanus, which I really enjoyed. Um, a friend of the podcast, Grant Watson and Sonia Markon, who both of whom have been on Martian Driving podcast before, Sonia plays one of the roles in the in the play, and Grant directed it. And one of the things that I really loved about it is the fact that all of the roles were played by women, and there's a different kind of strength to female acting, I think, than male acting. And I'm kind of vague on it, and I'm just kind of forming these ideas now, but there's... One of the things that made the Coriolanus really work for me was the fact that the character's traits of pride and, and stubborn pride, which doesn't in any way concede to the real world, came through for me a lot clearer than it would have in an, like a male-female version of the play because the testosterone was taken out of it and a different kind of strength a kind of female strength was displayed by the characters in this particular production. 
And one of the things I really like about Big Night is that the main female roles in it each have their own strength. Um, Phyllis has come in, come from the west of the New Jersey Shore. She lived out where cowboys are, somewhere in the um, the far west, in a sense of America. And she's kind of a fish out of water slowly. And she and Gabriella have a chat about it, um, about you know the, the kind of people they are and uh, how they see men. Yeah, it's a little bit Bechtel test, but. In context, the, the Bechdel test part isn't about their relationships with the men as much as these two women finding out who they are, who the other person is. And the men are only there as a means of doing that, which kind of, for me, works really in a really interesting way. And Isabella Rossellini is great in it. She's um, you, We first see her walking through Pascal's restaurant carrying a little dachshund and um, you know, glad-handing the the patrons and acting like the hostess and doing all that kind of stuff. And Gabriella is kind of, we, we get the sense that Gabriella knows who she is. She's comfortable in her own skin. She's having the affair with Secundo. She's married to a boorish, loutish, and very unpleasant man with whom she has a very rocky relationship. But she's kind of come to terms with her place in the world she lives in. And she gets a certain strength from that in that she can live life on her own terms within a certain range, I suppose. And, uh, yeah, I, I really like her too. The other, There are a couple of other female characters in the film, but the other one I like because I like the actor playing the role. And the florist played by Alison Jenny. Uh, she's a widow. She's running a, a florist business. She and Primo have a certain rapport, and both of them are kind of hesitant and shy. And... It's actually Segundo who invites her to the big night, which is kind of nice. But her and Primo are kind of circling around their attraction to each other. And it, it really is a... It, those things can be seen... The, in their wrong hands, that kind of a scene, but when the two of them are in the florist, Primo and Anne, and they're trying to pick flowers for the big night, and Primo has absolutely no fucking idea what he's doing. There's a delicacy to the way that's handled and to the way the actors move around each other and the the playing of the role. But, but it's, in other hands, it could have been farcical, but what it ends up being is kind of sweet and touching. And we know these two people are attracted to each other and both of them are shy for their own reasons. But there's a... The acting really works for me. I mean... Maybe it is going to see live theatre for the first time in many, many years. And seeing up close the the power of acting, that kind of made me reappreciate that. Rewatching that scene, I was just, had a smile on my face. It was just a, a sweet scene. And I've got a thing for Alice and Jenny anyway. And this is before she had her teeth done, so she had a little gap between the front teeth, which was very cute. And um, she's got that kind of non-traditional beauty that I kind of like. And, uh, yeah, it's it's just... The movie has a whole bunch of those small scenes with small groups of actors playing with each other really well and carrying the story along. None of it's kind of showboating or grandstanding. It's all in context. The characters are, are incredibly well inhabited in this movie. And... 
it's if you're if if you're the kind of person who watches movies not just for the action but for the acting, this is one of those movies that really works. Um, one of the things Tucci does well as an actor too is kind of portray held in frustration and anger. It'll come out at some stage, we know, but he's got a gift for building that head of steam in small gestures and movements and changes of body language and changes in the pace of his words and all those sorts of things. And in this movie, he does that. He's trying to keep the business together. His brother's fucking clueless about their finances. All he cares about is making the best food he possibly can, regardless of whether they make any money and whether the business keeps going. And he, because of that, and because he feels a fish out of water in America, he's drawn towards the offer from their uncle to go and work for his restaurant in Rome. Whereas Secundo is invested in the immigrant experience. He likes living in America. He likes the fact that he can go and have a test drive in a Cadillac with a use, with a car salesman played by Campbell Scott in a quite a slyly humorous role as well. Um, it, you know, we like his character, even though he's flawed and even though he's kind of going behind his girlfriend's back and having an affair with a woman who may be a, a few years older than him but is very charming and beautiful. Uh, in spite of that, that character flaw, we, we kind of love Secundo because he tries hard. He wants the best, not only for himself, but for his brother and for their restaurant. And Paradise, of course, is a very, very evocative name for the restaurant to have. So the brothers plan and prep for the big night. And I used to work in a kitchen. For eight months, I worked as a kitchen hand. And so I know a fair bit about food prep and how kitchens work and how people instinctively move around each other in the kitchen. And watching the food prep in this movie was one of the great joys for as well. There's a, um, an action montage, you could call it, of the brothers and their assistant, uh, a guy called Cristiano, played by Mark Anthony, preparing, uh, cutting up the vegetables, getting the food ready and things like that, which made me kind of nostalgic for those long-gone days when I was a kitchen hand. And you kind of know, you know, the fact that they instinctively reach out for the implement they need and they know it's there. The quick way with a knife, which I've lost a bit of over the years, of course. Uh, and uh, there's a kind of realism to the way that the kitchen operates, which I really appreciated. And they were doing things like making their own pasta by hand from flour and egg and water and doing everything by hand. And there's a montage of that of preparing the vegetables, of layering the timpano, which is a great big bowl with a layer of pastry in it. And then they fill this layer of pastry with meatballs and Italian sausage and vegetables and tomato sauce. And then they bake it in an oven until it's a perfectly cooked, enormous kind of pie, which is the timpano. And the tim- if you do it wrong, it'll all fall apart and drip out when you cut into the timpano. You do it right, everything stays in its place, and you get this beautifully layered look inside the timpano itself. It's a magnificent dish. It takes a lot of work, and um, I've actually had a few chats with people online about it since I saw the movie last night. And the people who've tried to make it say it's very easy to do badly. It's 
like a souffle in a way. You've just got to do it right. If it's too dry, it's horrible. If it's too wet, it's horrible. But if it's just right, it's one of the magnificent dishes of Europe. And so the brothers are doing the food preparation and the people are coming in for the big night expecting to see Louis Prima there who, and it's no spoiler to say this, never turns up because of Pascal's treachery. He never actually invited Louis Prima to the restaurant. He wants the brothers to work for him. And they yeah, they, they liquor up the people who've come over to dinner, including Anne and Phyllis and uh, friends and neighbours and um, a newspaper reporter and the local priest. And something magical happens. And, and this is something I relate back to podcasting and unfortunately Vince Rotolo's death. A community forms. And watching that reminded me in a fucked up and, and silly way of podcasting. A community forms in that room over the drink and the interactions with each other and the anticipating of seeing a celebrity. And the little amuse-bouches and, and things like that that come out. And then the meal itself when Secundo says, let's eat. And course after course of magnificent Italian food come out. At first, there's a, a risotto with three different kinds of risotto on an enormous oval tray. They get seafood risotto, they get a pea risotto, and they get the standard cheese risotto. All in a big round. People have a little bit of that. They get the timpano which cuts perfectly and is a magnificent meal they get that they get a fish course then they get a suckling pig and a dessert course all of which is incredibly visually beautiful but perfect italian food cooked extremely well and people bond over this they're amazed at the quality of the food even pascal is amazed and kind of in his over-the-top way which draws attention to him and away from the people who actually did this magnificent, magical thing. Um, Pascal is impressed with the quality of the food, but uses it as a way of drawing attention to himself, of course, because it's the sort of selfish prick he is. And there's just... Uh, but nonetheless, these community forms of people who... You see the start and the continuation of friendships happening in there. You see people talking with people they wouldn't normally talk with outside their own social and um, cultural circles. You see people dancing and singing and drinking and, and communicating with each other and just having that joy of life there. Even though Primo and Secundo and Phyllis and Gabriella and Pascal know that this is the last hurrah for the paradise. They won't be able to survive the big night because Louis Prima didn't come. And that that's magic for me. Um, it shows something that, for me, is the best in life, forming communities, talking with people. Um, in between recording the first half and the second half of this podcast, for instance, I recorded the first half about um, the other movie, Local Hero, this morning. Then I went out for an afternoon to... Uh, um, Julia and Craig's place. Julia is the person who won the podcast Box of Stuff this year. And I took it over to her place and we had afternoon tea there and there were donuts and there were meatballs and there was truffle cheese and all sorts of interesting, wonderful things. And I caught up with a few people, um, Tim and Norell and Julia and a bunch of other people as well. And it kind of reminded me of Big Night and I kind of... Yeah, you know, felt good about it. Sitting there talking about all sorts of things, talking about movies, talking about 
TV talking about the portrayal of women in movies. We had a conversation for about two or three hours that went really well. Then I came back and this evening, of course, I'm completing the podcast. But it shows that that sense of community and that sense of breaking bread and strengthening and forming relationships of various kinds is a basic human need and a basic human joy as well. And Big Night, the movie, celebrates this. It really does um, remind us how important it is to be a part of something larger than, the self, in a, uh, than ourselves in a, large, in a mainly secular way, just you know, hanging out with people, getting updates on the lives of friends and uh, seeing what they're going to be doing next, seeing where they are, um, exchanging gifts, which is, was a part of today, giving people little bits and pieces they found for each other. Um, th- this movie kind of celebrates that in a really interesting way with characters that we really like. The char- characters are well drawn, even though Pascal is kind of, in a sense, the villain of the piece. He's a secondary character, and even though his actions do have a prof- profound effect on the lives of Primo or Secundo ongoing. There's not the sense of villainy there. There's a sense of a flawed and selfish prick, yeah. But he's a character type that we've all known at some stage in our lives, that kind of selfish person who draws attention to themselves in each situation and really is um, somebody that your life will be badly affected by if you put your trust in them. But even so, the there's a fight, quarrel between Primo and Secundo on a beach. There's a confrontation between Phyllis and Secundo on the same beach at, at roughly the same time. And you know, a lot of the anger gets dealt with to a certain extent. And then right at the end of the film, we get a wonderful scene, which is all in one take, all in one shot of the next morning. Now, I'm not going to spoil it for you. You may well know the scene I'm talking about because it's right at the end of the film where you have Primo, Secundo and Cristiano in the kitchen together. And it takes place over about five minutes and it's the perfect way to end this film. There's no question of that. It really is nicely done, um, subtle. There's hardly a word spoken. It's all in what the people do and how they act. And it just ends the film exactly how it needs to end. This is a really great film. In fact, I've been looking forward to talking about this film on Paleo Cinema Podcast for a number of years. And I've just been waiting for it to click over to 20 years to stay within the format of Paleo Cinema. This is a kind of movie that makes you feel good to be a film buff. It's um, It's got characters you like. It's set in another time and place but it brings together things that we all share. An appreciation of food, family, friendship, love, betrayal, um, finding your place in the world, knowing your place in the world, and appreciating excellence in an unselfish way. And this, this is a great film. And if you haven't seen it, see it if you haven't seen it in a while definitely see it again um now a good friend of the podcast morris from over at love that album podcast has actually sent me an email about these two movies and uh wanted to share his feedback about them with us so just give me a moment while i open up 
the Gmail, and I'll let you know what Morris said about these two films. Okay, here's Morris. Um, hey, Terry. So happy that you're discussing two films I'm a huge fan of. I saw both Local Hero and Big Night on cinema release, and I've seen them both many times since. Before Local Hero, I watched Bill Forsyth's Gregory School a number of times, so his name on Hero was a big draw card for me. Both have a wonderful, gentle sense of humour about them. They are funny because, in a way, they both ring true. Nothing is contrived. I know you're not a fan of Mark Knopfler. He certainly had moments that I had no interest at all in. But I love his score for Local Hero. He's really captured the mood and character of the characters in the story beautifully. I love that the film sort of turns the notion of a tale of community on its head. Instead of uniting for a common good against an oppressor, the community is interested in common greed, and yet it's never overstated. I'm sure that the creators of Northern Exposure must have been fans of this film. Bert Lancaster showed that he still had a great performance in him, and a lightly comical one at that. For those who can only remember Peter Capaldi as a foul-mouthed Malcolm Tucker in the thick of it, I don't watch Doctor Who, so that's not a point of reference for me. His role in Hero is the antithesis of everything Tucker stands for. Peter Capaldi and Peter's Capaldi and Regat are a wonderful comic team. As for Big Night, I don't know that I've ever seen a film that can make you want to go away and eat for days more than this film. I love watching food on film. I'm sure you've summarised the story really well. But one thing I want to say is that this is my favourite final scene in a movie ever. No spoilers for your listeners, but it's direct, wordless contrast to everything that comes before it. And a gesture between brothers shows that in the hands of a really skilled writer and director like Stanley Tucci, you don't need a big bang gestures to show something emotional and real which ultimately serves as a great parallel between the way the story is told and the story itself enough of my ramblings really looking forward to hearing this episode of paleo cinema cheers morris and morris sends a link to www.icehalos.com which is archipelago group that he's in and they are very good also love that album.blogspot.com and see here.podbean.com which are his two podcasts um thanks Morris. yeah you're right um both of the movies have a gentle humor about them i mean i like rude and rough humor as much as anybody but i also have an appreciation of the kind of gentle subtle humor that both of these movies have about them they're both really great films and I don't mind watching a great big tempo blockbuster like Captain America Civil War one day and enjoying these two movies the next, in fact, the same day. Um, I am large and contain multitudes. I am a river to my people. And on that note, I'm going to end the podcast. I love that quote from Lawrence of Arabia. It's one of my all-time favourite movie quotes. Um, yeah, thank you again for listening. Thank you, of course, to the Patreon subscribers who are uniformly wonderful people and I wish them only miracles and wonders in their lives in future. I haven't redone the credits yet, so I apologise for any omissions on the credits for the Patreon subscribers. I'm going to do that early next month. actually early this month because it's now March but anyway look after yourselves those of you who are going through rough times please take care of yourselves we care Um, those who are having good times enjoy the fuck out of them please and in the meantime I will see you guys next week with another Martian Drive-In podcast I'll be back in two weeks with a Paleo Cinema podcast so I'll catch you guys later bye and now here are the podcast credits I'd like to thank Tom, our focus puller, Sarah, our special effects technician, Ian, the caterer, Grant, our technicolor consultant, Claire, the script doctor, Gary, the prop master, Morris, our musical director, 
Jan, our dialect coach, Armin, our key grip, Matt, um, our rattlesnake wrangler, Elaine, our scientific advisor, Julia, our casting director, Chris, our camera operator, Christopher, our gaffer, Miss Jane, the wardrobe mistress, Tansy, our foley artist, Alyssa, our location scout, Mark, our second unit director, Paul, our special makeup effects director, Tamora, the donut wrangler, Tim, the New York unit director, Rabbi Steve, our spiritual advisor, Steve Solomon, our werewolf consultant, Dylan, the goat wrangler, Eric, our set security lead, Richard H., our set photographer, and the two extras, Mark D. and David L. Thank you to all of the podcast supporters. (laughs) 